It's Behind the Headlines on WLIWFM. This is our weekly opportunity to sit down with award-winning journalists from all over the East End to do a little bit of a deeper dive into the week's news. I'm Joe Shaw. I'm the executive editor of the Express News Group. We publish the Southampton Press, the East Hampton Press, the Sag Harbor Express, the website 27East.com, and the magazine uh, Express Magazine. Uh, with me is my co-host, Bill Sutton. He's the managing editor of the Express News Group. Good morning, Bill. Good morning, Joe. Good morning, everybody. And our panelists today are Beth Young, the editor of the East End Beacon. Good morning, Beth. Good morning. Good to have you. Brian Cosgrove, who's the host of the Afternoon Ramble right here on WLIWFM. Brian, good to have you. Always good to be here. Thanks. Thanks for joining us. And Christopher Ganjemi, who's a staff writer at the East Hampton Star. Hey, Christopher, how you doing this morning? Good morning. Good to have you. So uh, let's start off talking about East Hampton. Uh, it's only January, but it feels like we're already starting the election season, thanks to Peter Van Squick, the uh, East Hampton Town Supervisor. And uh, he announced this week that he is not seeking re-election to East Hampton Town Supervisor. And immediately after that, uh, Kathy Burke Gonzalez, who is the Deputy Supervisor, announced plans to uh, seek the Democratic nomination for that job in East Hampton Town, which is essentially uh, what you want to get because the East Hampton Town is so heavily Democratic at this point, the Democratic nomination is is likely going to get you the job. Beth, Peter Van Skuck's been in town government for, I believe it was 23 years, and he's been supervisor for for 12. This is, this is uh, a, a fairly big transition uh, coming for East Hampton Town. Yeah, he's been on the town board for 12. I think supervisor for about six. Okay, there you um, go. Yeah, and before that, he was on the planning board and the zoning board. Um, and he's really been uh, involved with everything that happens there for quite quite some time. Um, uh, he, uh, When Larry Cantwell retired, he became a supervisor um, back in the day. Um, and Larry took over kind of after some... Uh, very contentious things happened. Um, there was a Democratic administration that had really um, uh, got caught in the middle of the economic meltdown in the late 2000s. They ended up borrowing money from the CPF. Then another Republican administration, one of the very few Republican administrations you'll find in East Hampton came in after that, tried to clean up the mess, butted a lot of heads with people. And then um, Larry was kind of known as a, a very... Um, He'd been village administrator in East Hampton for a while, and he was known as somebody who was like very um, steadying hand kind of a, steady, a very steadying hand. And uh, and so so Peter kind of carried on his work from then on. Um, he's had a big focus, I think, on sustainability uh, in his administration. I think that will be kind of what his legacy is um, going out. And um uh, Kathy's been with him pretty much the whole time um, uh, as the deputy supervisor now. Um, she's been very involved with the airport effort, which is an enormous project for uh, East Hampton to undertake. And they might see some progress on that this year, although you can never quite tell. So, and I was going to say, that's a, you know, Peter, Peter had his moments uh, with some big controversial issues, the airport obviously being number one on the list, but I'm also thinking about this recent uh, land swap uh, that the town board uh, wants to make in order to, to create a sewage facility for Montauk that right. involves swapping some preserved land. Um, he, he hasn't avoided controversy throughout his time as supervisor. No, he hasn't. Yeah. Yeah. And, the, and the, uh, Chris, the, the airport is going to continue to be a, a big conversation moving forward. And, and whoever is going to be supervisor next is going to inherit that conversation most likely. Yeah. And you know, it's funny. I, uh, one of the bits I do for the star each week is something called the way it was. And uh, so you go through news that happened 25 years ago, 50 years ago, et cetera. And uh, 25 years ago, the airport was, you know, being discussed and uh, lawsuits were being thrown at, you know, the town board. So, it's just uh, the more things change, the more things stay the same. 
it's almost eerie, right? How these things keep popping back up again. I mean, the, the thing when we were covering back then, we were thinking, God, the grant assurances, they expire in 2020. Is it, was it 2022, 2021? Yeah. That is so far in the future. <laughs> we'll never it, see it. And here we are. Yeah. Trying and, to and, and, those, and those grant assurances we're seeing, though, I mean, the last few years, we just got to hang on until they expire. Once they expire, we can do whatever we want. We just got to hang on. And they expired and, and we're still having the same conversations that, that we were before they expired. Chris, Chris, whatever the, the uh, political ramifications of this are, 23 years in town government is something to, to really appreciate. I mean, I, that, you know, it really is serve public service when you're working in town government. Uh, I think you would, we were talking a little bit before we went on air and it, it's a thankless job. I mean, you, you're really setting yourself up for a, a lot of criticism and, and not a whole lot of, of payback necessarily. You have to have a real municipal spirit to, to put your time in in town government for that long. Yeah. I mean, um, like we were saying that there, there's been these kind of rabid attack ads uh, against the town board members in the local newspapers, um, it's it's not exactly a high-paying situation, and you're you're probably getting criticized more than than you're getting congratulated. So it is uh, to be to be in I probably any position for twenty three years is isn't easy, but especially it being in the town government. Yeah, absolutely. Something something to applaud for sure. And, and you're getting criticized from both sides in, in, a, in a lot of cases. I, I think, you know, particularly with the airport issue, ne- neither side is 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 happy with um, with with any of the proposals moving forward necessarily. And maybe that's a, a testament to, to to Peter and the rest of the town board is is. You know, I, I mean, it was always the, the line that we used to toss around the newsroom. If both sides are unhappy with you, you're doing your job well, right? Because you're you're somewhere coming down down the middle. And, mm-hmm. you know, and maybe that's the case with the airport. I, I think that um, that the town board and Peter have tried very hard to 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 find a solution that, that's going to keep the airport open and, and keep the pilots happy to an extent, but also reduce, um, you know, reduce noise and um you know, and, and all the hardships on on the residents, um, you know, living in the in the flight paths and stuff. Um, and, that, and that may be his legacy, whether he sees it finalized or not, um, that, that, you know, whatever whatever plan they finally come up with, that, that that's, you know, that middle ground direction is, is the way that um, that they've been pushing this. Yeah, Brian, I, I was just wondering, do, do any of you guys think someone else is going to step up for the Democratic nomination? I mean, I would imagine there's going to be at least a couple, right? Or is it just going to be fairly, you know, just, okay, well, she's going to get it. That's, Chris, when when you have a deputy supervisor, and it, and it seemed like the announcements were sort of coordinated to some degree. Yeah. Uh, there, there appeared to be a passing of the, of the torch uh, to some, uh, the passing of the baton. Um, I think they were coordinated to come out five minutes after we finished taping last week's show. Is that right? <laughs> so the timing was right there. So are there, there are, is anybody else you think, I mean, this is really just an educated guess, but will there be challengers stepping forward maybe to try and uh, go after that seat? I haven't heard of anybody yet, but I'm not really on the inside of all of that. Because one of, one of the first names that I thought of was Jeff Bragman. Right. Well, hmm. I don't. Was Jeff? Did he run as a Democrat or an independent? Or yeah, he didn't get those. He ran at the Democratic Party, I believe. But um, that could be the the issue. And, and he has locked horns with Peter Van Squake at times over yeah. over the years, so that's a possibility. But you know, for now, Kathy Burke Gonzalez is alone out there uh, in announcing her bid for supervisor. Beth, can you tell us a little bit about her? And I mean, I don't necessarily want a resume. I'm just sort of curious um, what Kathy's, you know, what's your impressions of Kathy? Was she, you know, does she have the skills to be a town supervisor? Um, she is a very thorough um, um, researcher who does a lot of 
she's been doing a lot of the the grunt work getting things through i mean a lot of that stuff with the faa she spent an, an awful lot of time working on the path that would work getting um getting something done um obviously this path has not worked yet but that's due a lot to the lawsuits that um were kind of inevitable um regarding the airport so they're going to be redoing the process they did last year i believe it was last year um uh with the environmental impact statement seeking the public comment and not using um not using the trial period they were going to use last summer to get the data for the environmental impact statement so uh, so the the most recent lawsuit basically the judge agreed that they needed to finish the environmental review before they implemented changes at the airport and the town was thinking we have to do it on a trial basis to get the data so that we can finish the environmental impact statement so that was a difference of opinion they're going to be working through that this spring um uh, but uh, she, before she was on the town board, she was uh, very involved in the spring school board for a long time. And uh, during sometimes when they were going through some really serious issues that, you know, the Springs school has a lot of kids in it relative to most of the other elementary schools in, in East Hampton. Um, they have a relatively small facility. They really had to like just work really hard to make sure all the students are educated there. They, you know, had a, a large English English as a second language um, portion of their student bodies. So just getting all those pieces together was something um, a little more challenging than your average school board out here. Um, and she was the uh, the uh, president of that school board for the last couple of years she was there. So when you talk about thankless jobs yeah. um, on, um, on the list of, of thankless jobs that, uh, you know, being on the school board as well. Chris, have, yeah. you, have you dealt with, with Kathy much? Uh, I haven't. In fact, I was, I was going to ask what, what is she, what has she done like professionally outside of government? Do we um, know that? Marketing. Marketing. Back to uh, back to Brian's question too, and I, I don't know if the you know if, if it's too early to talk about primaries. We haven't heard any names, but you know, um, Councilwoman uh, Sylvia Overby also announced this week that she's not going to seek re-election. She's a Democrat on on the board. Beth, Beth, do you know if um, um, if if, uh, if Kathy Burke Gonzalez, if if her term is up? this time or would she hang on to the seat until after the election and then require a special election my, my point being is there's going to be a couple seats open on on the town board no matter what happens with with supervisors race and um and while it is a, a certainly a democratic town right now um a couple open seats maybe leaves the board a, a little vulnerable to um to a republican push and you know um republicans have, have had trouble getting the votes but but they're very active in 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 east hampton you you know um and certainly they're going to try to push for um for at least a seat or two on on the board yeah absolutely it'll be it'll be interesting to see um i believe she's in the middle of her term so there would be two so it's seats. a safe seat for now yeah so but uh, if she wins then you would need a special election to fill that seat or there would be an appointment i'm not sure how that would work right um i believe they appointed david lease but maybe they had a special it, election they, the they, they did but then they had a special election to fill the remainder of the um um of the term so it was like so he was elected for a year and then and then was re-elected he's going to run again um by the way he said he's willing to run again but I, just and I, may have, I, I may have been a little too flip early on in saying, you know, that that being the Democrat on on the ticket really gets you the job, because, uh, Beth, as you pointed out, uh, the Republicans have held the supervisor position and they've had some success in the past. It's it, it's sort of a, a, a town that 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 does occasionally swing, even though right now. Uh, the Democratic, I, I yeah, think. Yeah, but you, you're right. It's it's trended Democrat over the last, yeah. you know, it's, few years. And, changed. Yeah. yeah. I mean, when, when Jay Schneiderman was supervisor there, he was a Republican and he's not a Republican anymore. So. Right. Um, so the town has changed. And I think the 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 Republicans who got in after the Bill McGinty thing, I mean, they were elected in the middle of a scandal. So that... Definitely. Um, look, there, there's the, you know, there's the whole, I mean, we talked about the airport issue and, and that, that can come into, into play because you've got some really strong opinions on, 
on both sides. You've got, you know, groups, airport groups that have been critical of the current town board, and there seems to be a little money behind them. And um, and you never know if they're going to put somebody up to, to run and, and uh, you know, and give them that financial support that they would need to put a put in a good race. Yeah. It seems like the way it was announced, the uh, candidates, uh, the candidate, which would be Ms. Burke Gonzalez, seems to envision a pretty seamless transition from the current supervisor to the deputy supervisor, but politics always intervene and those things yeah. get a lot more complicated. So that'll yeah. be something to watch yeah, as the we Republicans move. are starting to screen people today, I believe, or yesterday. It'd be interesting to see who they put up and, and there really is an opportunity here for them to put up a candidate uh, to make it a race. So we are off and running with the 2023 uh, local election season. Always an interesting thing to watch. This is Behind the Headlines on WLIWFM. I'm Joe Shaw. I'm the executive editor of the Express News Group. My co-host is Bill Sutton. He's the managing editor of the Express News Group. And our panelists today are Christopher Gangemi of the East Hampton Star, Beth Young of the East End Beacon, and Brian Cosgrove from right here at WLIWFM. And uh, Bill, we should probably mention uh, the sort of chaos that's going on right now in Southampton Village that we reported on this week. Uh, they had chosen a new police chief after, I believe it's been more than a year since Tom Cummings uh, stepped down from the position. And, and they've had uh, Susan Hertow, who's been the acting chief during that time, but they've been actively searching for a new police chief. They seem to find one right before Christmas, but that's now uh, a different story, right? Yeah, it, it certainly is. So it was it was actually a bit of a, a brouhaha, if I could use that expression um, without drawing ire from Brian. Um, in uh, in December, when the uh, the four members of, of the village board um, came forward and, and said that they had um, that they had found a, uh, a you know, a, a new police chief, they had had they called a meeting apparently without uh without the mayor's knowledge um and um had a, a signed contract with him um he was going to um uh, he was going to start in in march um uh they passed the resolution hiring um hiring him um is anthony carter was anthony uh, carter anthony carter i couldn't think of his first name um, he was he's a longtime NYPD veteran and is currently working in a, I think, a civilian capacity with uh, with Suffolk County Police and administration. Um, got a 29 year career in, in law enforcement, um, but it it, uh, it angered the mayor because he had, um, you know, and, and he spoke at the meeting in December. So it wasn't wasn't Carter wasn't his choice and, and he didn't. Um, wasn't happy with uh, with the way that it had worked out. Nevertheless, the four other board members, um, you know, voted to approve Carter. Um, the the mayor then, um, you know, spoke out to to uh, regional newspapers, New York Post, and wrote a viewpoint in in Southampton Press, um, explaining his reasons for not supporting him. So fast forward past the you know past the holidays into this past week. And um, and there's a village board meeting in in, in which um, uh, Roy Stevenson, who's one of the village board members, um, was critical of um, of the mayor and, and his decision, and and got up and and Carter was there, and um, some of the union reps were were there, and and he kind of took the mayor to task, um, you know, in in his support of of Carter. Um, and we kind of thought that was the end of it. And then a couple of days later, um, Carter came forward and said that uh, he was going to decline the position at this point. And he didn't cite the mayor's decision or the politics, but you have to assume that that he just didn't want to uh, come into 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 the mess and you know come into a village and serve as a police chief with a with a mayor who obviously wasn't uh, wasn't supportive of him. He didn't cite it, but. Mayor Jesse Warren's colleagues on the village board made no bones about it. They issued a statement and and just blasted the mayor, right? Yeah. I mean, they said they said basically that that they blamed the the 
uh, Anthony Carter's decision on the mayor's uh the way he responded to it and, and and the way he spoke out and some of the things he said both at the meeting and you know in his public statements so he, his viewpoint with us and uh he spoke, and, so he'd spoke with the post and absolutely very critical of him and the process and and all that and so um and and very interesting because the mayor has kind of enjoyed a majority on that board for for a few years and has helped elect um, some of these different board members. But now it's looking, at least on this issue, like like he's now in, in the minority. You, you saw the other four um, members band together, uh, you know, to hire this um, um, new police chief, apparently, you know, again, with without the, the mayor's approval or, or even knowledge we heard from 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 that first meeting. So the politics of of the board right now is really interesting. And, you know, and not for nothing. So so who loses is the is the people, the residents of the village of, of Southampton, who now are going to have to go probably another year um, with, without a police chief. Um, obviously, acting chief Hertau is 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 certainly very capable and has done a great job, um, you know, uh, over the past year and a half or, or, or whatever it's been. But um, just not having a decision and not having a police chief, I mean, Number one, you know, gives gives them a black eye, I think, on on the board. But, um, you know, kind of kind of leaves the people wanting, I think it's it's interesting because to underscore the point you made when the mayor in this last election, it appeared that he was going to have a full board that that was basically his political. Uh, he, he helped get them elected. Right. And we we wondered if it would if it would bring in a whole new uh era for village government when when everybody was on the same page and now as you said the count right now appears to be four against one at least on a couple i mean it, at least on this key issue and yeah, we'll, we'll see how it, we'll see how it plays out i i don't know the how i don't know how you bounce back from this to you know to form <laughs> excuse me other other alliances once uh, this was so dramatic and so dramatic kind of if i can use the term anti-jesse um, you know, the mayor, Jesse Warren, so, so, so profound. I, I, I don't know how he bounces back from that and, and gets much done. Brian, what was what you Brian, you wanted to say something? Yeah, I just wanted to ask what were, um, do you know any of the reasons why the mayor was so against this guy's, this guy's police chief? I, I don't think it was anything personal other than, I mean, he cited a, a few reasons. It was, it was process. He just wasn't his first pick. He wasn't. He's not. He's not a local guy. Um, he. He. It's. It's debatable. But he. He cited. Um, you know the cost of of the contract. Um, but an analysis of looking at the numbers, it looks like because he's already got retirement and health insurance benefits from his time with with um, you know with NYPD um that that he would be earning less than former chief tom cummings so i i don't know what the objection is is there um, this has always been a a key point for the mayor he is he has been um i'm trying to choose a word i don't want to say obsessed because i don't mean it that way but it's been a very key point for him that the police department there's a lot of money going into the police department and in particular i think he was really incensed by Tom Cummings and his departure and the the package that he took with him when well, he left and, and how much it cost the village. Yeah, but he kind of forced that departure. Mm -hmm. and, and, um, and so there had to be, a, you know, a, a negotiation and an agreement. And I don't know that 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 the, the uh, exit package would have been the same had Tom Cummings uh, been allowed to stay on for another year and retire, um, as had been his plan. Yeah, it's a fair point, but I but I think but, but I think you're, I think you're right that the mayor just doesn't like the fact that that these people come and work for the village for for a number of years, retire, and then the village has to continue paying you know paying a, a, a pension and medical care and and all that, and so he tries to find ways to to reduce that, but that's it's fairly typical and it's fairly normal, um, right or wrong, and I don't know that you can you can you can't hire a police chief if you're not going to offer a competitive package right mm -hmm. yeah but brian that 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 has been sort of the focus i think 
of his opposition is it had to and I, and I think that the underlying thing that that isn't being said is I don't think the mayor was directly involved in any of those conversations and there's an irony here that all sides point out that it was actually the mayor who suggested Anthony Carter as a candidate mm. when he was doing research on another candidate uh, Anthony Carter's name popped up and it was actually the mayor that brought him to the search committee and, and suggested him. But I think ultimately that decision was made sort of outside the mayor. And I think that irked him mm-hmm. and, and I think probably helped to help feed it a little bit. But so, so Bill, we're sort of left now just sort of in limbo again, right? We, we were in limbo right. for the longest time. And there was a lot of lamentation on the board about so, the fact that this was not resolved. And now we're back to unresolved. We're, we're kind of back to square one, except that um, there's, there's a new chief's test that's been scheduled by the village that um, candidates interested in the position will, will take. And I think that's, I don't have the date right in front of me, but it's um, within the next couple months and it's a competitive exam. Um, that that hopefully will will draw some some new candidates and and give the the village board some some different options. But you know, at, at this point, it's you know, how how long are you going to go without a chief? Absolutely. Does the acting chief not want the job? I, I... I'm sorry. Does the acting chief not want the job? I mean, what what is the story with that? There there was some politics there too. Um, I, I think that she had kind of been been interested, but instead, um, she she took um, she took a promotion to captain um, and was happy is happy to be captain and and second command according to what she she said to to the press uh, anyway. <clears throat> um, it, it, there may have been issues with uh, with the chief's test or you know. I don't believe she's, she's passed the chief's test yet, which was one of the issues. But as yeah. you say, Bill, uh, I think she sort of withdrew from the candidacy and, and just well, was when, to, when, to be when promoted they, to Capitol. When, when they, yeah, when they announced that they were going to hire Carter, I think, you know, they they gave her the promotion to let her know that she was very valued and, you know, in, in the village and to keep her on and, and, and to keep her working. But maybe she'll take this new chief's test and um, and maybe um, maybe in the end it will be her. She seems to be well regarded in the community. People like her. She's well regarded um, by the by the department members, um, by the officers, by the unions. Everybody likes her. So, yeah, we kind of thought she was the obvious choice two years ago. There's been a whole debate about the the desire to have a local person rather than have somebody come in and lead the department too. So it'll be interesting to watch. We'll see what yeah. happens with that. Um, I want to switch gears a little bit and talk flora and fauna for a little bit. Um, we had a story uh, that's posting uh, this week about a new uh, report from the group from for the East End about the osprey population. You know, I, I feel like. We've, this is something we've talked about over the last few years, the rebound of the osprey population to the point now where it's maybe as healthy as it's been in decades. Um, this, Beth, is, is, a, is a huge achievement, and, and it's, it's something that took a lot of effort, and it took, it took a lot of time, but it's really paying off in a significant way. Yeah, I mean, it's amazing. It's almost to the point where um, there aren't enough poles for the ospreys in certain places, which um, uh, is actually leading to conflicts with uh, LEPA. And LEPA has a whole group that, or PSEG, um, has a whole group that's working with uh, uh, trying to redirect the ospreys away from uh, the most dangerous telephone poles or the ones they're most interested in because they've taken a really strong interest in. Um, in uh nesting on utility poles lately um which, but, which can uh, be dang- which can be dangerous for for the community and for the ospreys absolutely yeah so i, I don't know if you've seen the uh, um they've been putting up these little things that look like little tents over the top of utility poles a lot of times near the water um and they're the just guards. Keep... yeah what are they called the guards the guards yeah, yeah. Ah. <laughs> Um, so, uh, that's to, I mean, I guess they can't, um, they can't land on them. Right. 
um, and uh, then they don't build nests. Today. So, um, and I think I think some of the poles, some of the utility poles, they equip with uh, with stands to allow them, right? But they're but they're able to do it in a way that it doesn't interfere with the equipment, and as you said, doesn't put the osprey themselves out. Of yeah, some of them have these little saucers on them that say PSEG. So <laughs> I'm sure the Ospreys pick those out. It's uh, a good the, branding opportunity. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, so this is going to sound silly, Beth, but what did so? What did the Ospreys do a hundred years ago when there weren't telephone poles or a group from the East End building platforms? <laughs> where Where did they nest? I mean, it's an honest question because I mean, yeah. They're just trees. in trees, right? There were more trees. Yeah, I, I don't, I, I, I haven't heard, seen any studies to this effect, but I don't know if the hurricane of '38 knocked down big trees that they used oh, to. That, that, uh, but, um, but I mean, the big thing that really led to their die-off was DDT, which, right? Um, had, and that was in the '70s, and uh, I mean, we really saw the, the fallout. I mean, osprey were were nearly wiped out, right? Yeah, yeah. you know. Sorry. Last, last March, I wrote an article about this, and um, I had some numbers. I think that in the early part of the uh, 20th century, there were like 300 osprey nests on Gardner's Island. And in 2021, there were maybe 75 or 80. In, 19, in, in the early 70s, when DDT was what had really came, come close, um, there were 25. So, I mean, it gives you kind of an idea of of they lost, you know, 90% of their population in, in 60 years yeah. due to the DDT use. And Which, now they've gained back, you know, not all of it. Uh, they, they seem to be about a, about a third of the nests that were at Gardner's Island back in the day. And, and Beth, you, I think they did nest on old trees. And, you know, obviously not just DDT, but all of the development has, has affected the number of old trees that we have here now where they could nest. And that's why I think they are attracted more to the poles um, because there's less natural nesting opportunities for them. Just for the readers that don't know, so the DDT, the effect that that had was it, it softened the shells um, uh, you know, of, of, of the, the eggshells for of the ospreys and during during nesting and 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 as they're you know waiting the the eggs would would crack and break and that resulted in the population. Chris, I do have some some numbers, some recent numbers, I guess. So um, according to uh, according to um, to Bob DeLuca, who you know who who, um, who runs Group for the East, and in in the mid eighties there were maybe one hundred ospreys left in in the region. That's um, just a stunning number. It is. Last last summer, the count was um, the the group monitored 477 nesting sites in the five East End towns and documented 353 active nesting pairs, which produced 505 fledglings, um, which is fantastic. And they reported that just eight years prior to that, in 2014. The number of active nests had just been 199. So, so from 199 to 477 in, in just a decade is just uh, incredible numbers. And I think they've moved from endangered to um, I, I forget what the what the term is, where it's just threatened, I think, downgraded to threatened. Um I've, you know, uh, I've always been in uh intrigued by the ever since I can remember, I've been out here for 25 years. So the nest on the corner of 105 and Flanders Road on that mm -hmm. pole. I was the first time I saw it, I was like, holy cow. You know, that's a busy intersection. And there's been, I don't know if they, that's a family nest where they hand it down to generations. That's <laughs> like a prime real estate osprey nest, but it's always intrigued me. And I always take a look at it. I drive by it every day. And I always take a look always at it. That's, that's one of the nests I always check, there. and they've been there forever. Yeah. That nest has been there forever. What a heavy you know, traffic intersection, but they. But I, I feel like it's a statement by yes. the community too. <laughs> yes. Priorities, and, yes. and and I really do. I think it, it's a statement. Yep. And if I could, if I can digress for a minute, Brian, um, <laughs> a friend of mine, a conservative friend of mine, uh, and I had a conversation about uh, the <clears throat> ozone layer, and said, "Oh, remember when everybody was talking about the ozone layer and 
And now all that talk just went away. It was just a bunch of nonsense. And I went and did the research and told them, well, no, what actually happened is we took steps to address the problem and we fixed a lot of the issue and the ozone layer has repaired exactly as scientists said it would if we did those steps. So it's actually a success story. And I feel like the Osprey situation on the East End needs to be celebrated in a similar way that this is this is human action that that we were taking an action that that caused a decimation of that population we also took action and and real concerted over decades and we are now seeing the real benefits that you you see osprey in the air around the waters of the east end all the time that's a success story that we should celebrate we we need to tell people about this yeah and on a side note i re i just uh a couple of months ago and i've seen two so far this is a side thing i spotted my first uh eagle on the north fork which is so cool you know yeah so I gotta, the, it's worse than my phone when I'm driving. I'm looking up and <laughs> birds and crows and hawks, you know. I just want to say, it. Yeah. go ahead, Chris. Like totally, uh, the eagle is, is totally related to the osprey, too, because they were affected by DDT in, in the same way. And I think it's interesting. We all notice the osprey. We notice the eagle, uh, hawks. These are all big birds yeah. that are, are almost you know, really obvious. But what we don't see or or notice as much or not easy all the small birds that you know are direct effect on those populations by some of the clearing that's happening i mean during covid everybody just kind of cleaned up their properties removing all of the whatever scrub and they don't think about how that's affecting the catbirds you know sparrows other, other nesting birds here that are less easy to see and celebrate but Joe, to go to your point, we I think if we can use this Osprey lesson to kind of extend out that our actions have direct impact yep. and yeah. to just take it one more step, the pesticides that we're using with the, the, the kill off of the insects is absolutely insane. We don't appreciate insects because, you know, we're not going to really see them or they're not cute, but um, <laughs> It's that's that's a real big problem uh, for the East End. The amount of pesticides that are used to kill ticks are also killing every other insect out here. And birds, small birds, uh, use those insects to feed their young. Without that, we're going to lose. Yeah, ecology is all about the interconnectedness of of all the species. And yeah, and yeah, but and I and I feel like there can be a despair that comes with the declines that we see and you go, Oh, you know, honeybees are dying. We don't know why, what are we going to do? Nothing we can do about it. Well, I think it's important to remind ourselves there's a lot we can do about it. Absolutely. And, And we have this track history of success, we can actually look at the number of osprey on the East end. And that should remind everybody that for better or worse, human beings can have an enormous impact on, on the environment around us. So that's uh, something I wanted. I wanted to sort just, of highlight. I just want to correct correct myself um, while while I'm 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 looking at it. So so uh, the ospreys were first endangered, then they were classified um, as threatened, and then it looks like in 1999 um, they were classified as species of special concern because the the population was growing back, and that's their uh, that's their current status. So I just didn't want. Uh, <laughs> and that just shows it just shows the, the growth um you know of the species can i just make one more point joe really quick mm-hmm. uh, to to the conversation you mentioned about the ozone i also think that it's important that we don't take for granted that we can change things when we want to i mean just because the ozone layer would you know may may not be an issue now or is perceived as not an issue now um, doesn't mean we have to necessarily destroy things first before we fix them. We can maybe be a little bit more conscious about, you know, not destroying stuff. And you can see the writing on the wall for a lot of these species. They've lost, we've lost, you know, 25% of the bird population in the last 50 years. Mm. Um, and if we continue the way we're going, we're going to lose a lot more. So, and I think pollinators is another thing we're going to talk about a lot in in our papers in the coming year. It's been a a, a real key 
uh, topic for us. And we want to do a little more of a deep dive into some of the things that can be done. And you mentioned it, that, that they're sort of at the bottom of a chain uh, and we see the effects, uh, you know, up the chain uh, when the pollinators go. So uh, mm. interesting stuff, but, but, you know, it's, it's just a reminder that the news isn't always bad. Uh, I think there's some good news in there, too. Uh, it's Behind the Headlines on WLIWFM. I'm Joe Shaw. My co-host is Bill Sutton. We're with the Express News Group. Our panelists today are Beth Young of the East End Beacon, Brian Cosgrove right here at WLIWFM, and Christopher Gangemi from the East Hampton Star. And uh, Chris, I, wanna, I wanted to talk about feral cat colonies as somebody who's adopted uh, two cats from the Southampton Animal Shelter who came out of feral cat colonies. Uh, this is a, a topic of interest to me. Uh, the Southampton town recently uh, did a little bit of a forced relocation of a colony of feral, cat, uh, feral cats in uh, at Sagaponic Main Beach. Why did they move this feral cat colony out of Sag, Maine? Well, uh, over the last year, the American Bird Conservancy had been, you know, threatening them um, after they were tipped off that. Um, or, or showing a picture of, of cat prints in the plover enclosure area. Um, and so they These are the federally, been, federally protected piping plovers. Yes. And so they were threatening to sue uh, the town for not doing their part to protect the plovers. And so, you know, first uh, the town went to the people who were feeding the plover, plovers and I mean the, the cats and with their houses under underneath the there was like a little colony set up right and volunteers yeah. were, were, were sort of taking care of this colony of feral cats yeah and apparently there's tons of these uh, volunteers um, all over the Hamptons uh, and well first they the fire uh, chief came and said that there, there was a, a fire hazard here under the um pavilion and that was one way of doing it but but ultimately um you know and also apparently it's in the town code is littering you're not allowed to you know feed the cats and um or leave cat food about and um so yeah the, the town you know pressured the people who were feeding the the cats and and they did disband the colony and rehoused the cats um, when you say rehoused, what what do you do? We know what what happened to the cats. Yeah, um, okay. well, I think one um, one of the main feeders of the cats took in like six uh, herself, and I think she's trying to get them moved to other uh, houses as well, adopted. Um, I, I think that's that's which is, which is difficult with feral cats. So. Yeah, I mean that's that's a lot, um, but. So that's the uh, thing is that these these people who were feeding them are also trying to get them now adopted and moved on. I don't think ARF can take them currently, um, and that's that's one issue. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, and I wonder if this will have a ripple effect on you know I, you had a specific issue here, right? And it was the threat to the piping clovers, which is not a small thing. I, I mean, uh, I think the federal government really does require Southampton Town to take serious action to protect the plovers. Yeah, and you know, it's interesting. It kind of, it's similar to the conversation we just had about the Ospreys. I mean, we, we do pay a lot of attention to the piping clover and for good reason. However, the feral cats kill um, any bird. Um, and so there's tons of that, that habitat there in the dunes, you know, is uh, extensive and who knows how many birds are nesting in those dunes. So they're not, you know, I don't know if there was a, a picture of like a cat gobbling down a piping plover. You know, it's just the threat of it happening. It's a half mile away from the plover enclosure. Um, so I don't know how far a feral cat would range. Um, but it, there are threats to anything that happens to, to live in that dune. And, you know, we focus on development. You know, if you if you have a, a, a colony of feral cats there, they're basically taking away the habitat from those birds in the same way that a 10,000 square foot mansion will, you know, so. And, and, and cats that I'm assuming are just not native um, to, right. to, to, to that ecosystem. So they're not in that ecosystem. So, I mean, it's something that 
that we as humans have have, have brought in and kind of unleashed on on the um, on, on the animals that are that are there on the birds. Maybe, yeah, exactly. they, really, maybe they really taste like chicken. <laughs> they the the plovers. Yeah, they, they may be a very tasty animal. We don't you need, know. A, you need a little glad, more gravy. I'm glad to see less of those bumper stickers. Boy, were they. <laughs> yes. And if you if you if you find out what they taste like, you may be in federal prison. Yeah. Uh, as a result yeah. of, I wonder if they should relocate some of the feral cats to some of the active uh, farms where they might be actually welcomed <clears> because of, of the ability there. So let's switch gears again. And, or, or, and, or send them into New York City where they have the rat yeah, apparently, right? Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, let's switch gears again. Um, Chris, I want to talk about Wainscott. And there is a conversation brewing there about what's going to happen in a former sand mine. Uh, and it's creating a bit of a stir in, in Wainscott. Yeah, I mean, and this has been a long time coming. I mean, they've been working on this... Uh, it's a 70 acre plot of land just north of the uh, Speedway gas station there when you're uh, entering into East Hampton town uh, that they're looking to, you know, basically take a grid of 50 commercial industrial lots and just you know, put it down on this 70 acre um, plot. The issue is, well, obviously traffic is a big issue. I mean, do we you know, need more traffic there? Uh, the headwaters of Georgica Pond are a couple hundred feet away from the southernmost portion of this lot. So anything that gets put there is going to, um, you know, Sarah Davison, who's um, the executive director of, I think it's called uh, Friends of Georgica Pond Foundation, said that anything that happens in that sand pit goes into that pond ultimately you know that's just the way the water the groundwater flows um so it's a big deal um the town in 2005 had a comprehensive plan that that called for something radically different you know some open space affordable housing which we all know is needed um and this plan really flies in the exact opposite direction of what the town uh, has envisioned for this space. So I do think the public hearing, which is February 8th, and there's two sessions, it's five, at least five hours worth of public hearing, which is a lot, um, is, uh, it will be well attended. And I have a feeling it'll be, I don't, I don't know many residents who are going to be like, yeah, 50 commercial lots. That sounds like a good idea. Let's, let's have this traffic and, you know, polluted water, please. <laughs> you know, I just don't... What, com what complicates it though, Chris, is that, that it's a, a former sand mine. So it's a very disturbed site already, right? It's not just, this isn't a bucolic 70 acre piece of property. This is a, a, a uh, this is, uh, I hope this doesn't make, make it sound like I'm choosing it, but this is a giant scar in in the in the landscape right now. It's 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 already been about as disturbed a piece of property as you're going to get. Yeah, I mean, I hate that kind of logic. Um, you know, it's the same <laughs> thing with uh, with a bridge bridge sag turnpike when you have that dump, and then they said, "Well, this is disturbed. Let's put the the uh, the um, the police lot there, not the police." You know what I'm? What what is it called? Um, uh, the uh, impoundment the, lot. Impound lot. Yes. yes, and then and then because that's disturbed, we can now put a a, a foam pole there. You know, right? Yeah, and that that kind of thing, it, it just kind of builds upon itself. Um, so yeah, it, it's disturbed, and there was a a, a sand mine there. Um, but uh, maybe maybe it does become a good spot for for affordable housing now that the town is is focused on that, and the CHF has been approved and. Um, I was looking back at a little coverage on this and and the property owner, John Tintel, has said that he'd be willing to to maybe um, pare down his plans and sell a, a little bit of the property to the town. So that's encouraging. You don't have a developer who's who's going to, you know, stick his his uh, heels in the sand and say, no, I'm you know, I'm, I'm going to build this no matter what. Um, so maybe that maybe this turns into a, a good opportunity to do something positive, at least with some of the property there. Yeah, I think that it could be having a positive outcome. Um, what I've heard about the way that they want to sell the land back to the town, though, is post-division. Mm 
So if you have these 50 lots and maybe right. you're going to sell, you know, one acre here, one acre there, I don't know if that's the best way for the town to preserve um, the land. Um, yeah. I, I, but you would hope that something good could happen. And, you know, I'm, I'm sure that there's maybe a mixture of, of use that could be used there. Sure. Um, Timing is everything. And it feels like if it was a little bit later, you'd start to see the CHF revenue rolling in and it might give the town some options as far as saying, you know, they might be able to go to the property owner and make, make an offer. You can't refuse to, to buy that property and think about using it for affordable housing or, or, you know, maybe there's an opportunity there for the town to get creative and think of, of a hybrid use that, that, you know, one of the things that doesn't exist on the South Fork is housing with commercial development, you know, on the same site, you know, in a way that may allow you to, you know, use it as workforce housing at the properties that are, they're doing business there. So hmm. interesting stuff. But as you say, that's a big hearing that's coming up and a, a long hearing. And it's likely to to draw a pretty pretty big crowd, right? You, the the town left all, a, a long hearing open because they're expecting a lot of comment. All all of Wainscott will be there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's going to be a big one. Tailgating and who knows what else is going to happen in the parking lot. You know, it'll make for an interesting municipal event. No question. Mm-hmm. So, so we are just about out of time this week right. for behind the headlines. Oh yeah, what's that, Brent? I just since you you said that we're we're running out of time, I just wanted to mention and this. I don't want to take thirty seconds here, and I don't want to sound too idealistic, but uh, I just want to tell you how fortunate I think we have that the radio station, we have this program, we have you guys as journalists out here because this situation with George Santos, and the one newspaper on the North Fork of Nassau County that warned against him, and no one listened. And it was only one newspaper because of the hit local journalism has taken. And now we're in a real debacle because how close the house is. This has affect us, affected us nationally. So I just wanted to sing your praises, how fortunate I feel that I know all of you guys and that I have never met or dealt with a journalist on my show or on the East End that has not put the truth first. And I want folks to realize that how important it is the work you guys do and how fortunate we are to have you. Because this thing with Santos shows how important it is to stay local and stay true to the real heart of journalism. So I wanna thank you guys for that. That's Brian, much appreciated, I, Brian. Thank I, you. I will tell you, Brian, that I think I speak for Bill, Beth, and Chris when I say, we will always make time on Behind the Headlines for praise. That's something we <laughs> <laughs> 30 seconds out for. No, no issues at all whatsoever. <laughs> Thank you for saying that, Brian. And, and I think it's a great point to remember. Uh, I think it's also important for citizens to stay informed. And I think that's yes. part of the equation as well. Yeah. Okay, now we are out of time. So uh, <laughs> I want to thank my guests, uh, Christopher Ganjemi from the East Hampton Star, Beth thank Young you. of East End Beacon, and Brian Cosgrove of WLIWFM. Thank you, guys. We appreciate you being here. Uh, thank you also to my co-host, Bill Sutton. Bill, I will see you here again next week with Behind the Headlines. <laughs>